and welcome to the latest episode of HL Pensions Pod. I am Beth Sheehan, a Senior Associate in the Pensions team here at Hogan Novels, and today's episode is focused on a very topical issue, being cyber attacks and how trustees should prepare and respond to them. I'm joined by an expert in this area, my colleague Sarah Marinoni, who is an associate in our data protection team. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. So Sarah and I, along with our colleagues, have spent the last couple of weeks advising our clients who have been affected by the Capita data breach that occurred back in March, and which I'm sure you've all heard lots about. So we thought this would be a great opportunity to discuss our experiences over the last few weeks and to pass on some top tips to our listeners. To put all of this in context, whilst many of the trustees that we advise have been considering cyber risk for several years now, the events of the last few weeks, I think, have really shown that the risks facing pension schemes from cyber attacks are significant and real. The regulator has also been encouraging trustees to consider the risk of cyber attacks for a while now. And the new general code or single code as we know it, which we're expecting to be published later this year, will for the first time make it a requirement for trustees to have a cyber attack response plan in place. So the events of the last few weeks involving Capita has required a lot of these response plans to be put into action for many trustees, often for the first time. And it's raised a number of interesting uh, practical and legal issues that perhaps we and our clients hadn't considered before. So we're going to be discussing some of these today to hopefully ensure that we're all better prepared next time any cyber attacks occur in future. So first of all, I thought we'd look at a few points around how to prepare for a data breach. And as we all know, in all walks of life, preparation is key. And as part of that, when it comes to cyber attacks, I think it's important for trustees to ask themselves where their scheme data is. And by this, I mean, and I think some schemes already undertake something that we call data mapping. And this involves considering and recording who holds and processes all the data relating to the scheme and for what purpose. This will indicate to trustees your potential risk areas. And I think something the last few weeks have shown us is that when considering when your data, where your data is, trustees not only need to consider their current advisors and service providers, but we also need to think about any former service providers as well. For example, it's common practice for former administrators to keep a copy of scheme data for a period of around seven years after they've ceased to administer a pension scheme. And we often find that this is documented in the exit agreement that trustees are required to sign. And this situation has raised a number of interesting legal questions that Sarah and I have been considering. So Sarah, a question for you then. If in this situation, a former administrator is holding data for its own purposes for this period of seven years after they have ceased to administer a scheme, what is its role in respect of that data? Yes, that's actually a very good question considering to always bear in mind. And in this scenario, if the former administrators, as you say, in accordance with the exit agreement or relevant contract that is in place with the trustees, retain personal data to use it for their own purposes, for example, for compliance with legal obligations, and therefore no longer process it uh, on behalf of the pension scheme, then they will be considered controllers with regards to that data. In practice, 
Um, this means they will be independently responsible for complying with applicable legal obligations, including on this topic uh, in relation to personal data breaches. So what then is the trustee's role in respect of the data? Would they also be a data controller? Yes, so the trustee will remain data controllers as they were before, um, and that's in respect to the data they keep processing for the purpose uh, of the scheme. Um, and that means the usual obligations under the UK GDPR and generally data protection law will continue to apply. So in these circumstances then, and the key question that you and I were, have been asked over the last couple of weeks is, given that both the former administrator and the trustee could be a data controller here, where does the primary responsibility lie to um, comply with the formal notification obligations, so with the ICO and with members? Yes, so in the specific case that we were considering recently, for example, and based on the circumstances of that data breach, we reached the conclusion that the primary responsibility for notifications would lie with the former administrator rather than the trustee. It's important, however, in this context to stress that as independent controllers, both the former administrator and the trustees are under the same but separate notification obligations under the law. And so it will be key to consider in each case who is mainly responsible or uh, if both parties, for example, are responsible. And I think it's also very helpful in practice to consider communicating promptly and effectively between each other. So for the trustees to communicate with the former administrators, including um, in line with any provisions of the exit agreement, which might actually be more specific as to what happens in these scenarios. Okay, great. And I think this has really flagged up some learning points and some action points um, for trustees in the future who are looking at changing administrators. As I said, it's in the past, it's been a standard term of exit agreements that um, administrators are able to hold on to data for a period of seven years for their own purposes. But I think going forward, we'll, we will be challenging that a lot more. Trustees may want to think about pushing back on that. So perhaps fusing consent for the former administrator to hold on to the data, perhaps having a power in that exit agreement to require them to delete or return that data at the trustee's request or perhaps agreeing a much shorter period so the trustee has more certainty around where that data is. And I think as well, the exit agreement should make very clear where the responsibilities lie for complying with GDPR and notification obligations if there was a, a cyber attack or breach that happened in future. So an, a really key document that's important for trustees to have in place when preparing for a cyber attack is the incident response plan. And I think most trustees probably have one of these in place already, but we've certainly found it really helpful over the last few weeks, particularly in the first stages of responding to a cyber attack. It's always really helpful to have the first few key steps set out that trust, so trustees know what they're doing. So I would encourage your pension schemes to put one in place if you haven't already, and also make sure that you're happy with all the contact details on there, practical things like that, so you can make sure that everyone is contactable in an emergency, even if you get notified on a Friday afternoon, as we were in some cases. So, Sarah, in your experience, are there any other top tips you could share with our listeners to help prepare for a cyber attack in advance? Yes, in fact, having an incident response plan is definitely the first step, but an incident response plan is only as good as the ability of the trustees or the controllers to implement it efficiently in practice. And it's important to ensure that employees or relevant contact people within the organization know exactly who does what and when, particularly in a crisis situation. 
what we often find more often with complex incidents that require a lot of coordination and moving pieces is that having carried out an incident simulation, for example, by way of what we call a tabletop exercise, ensures a smoother implementation of the incident management planning practice and ensures that people are prepared should one happen. So that's basically running a kind of an exercise, a kind of fake cyber attack exactly. to test your response. Exactly. Yeah. I've been a party to that for a couple of trusted clients and it's very helpful. It is very helpful. Okay, great. So we've discussed a couple of pointers around preparing for cyber attacks. And we thought we'd move on now to look at responding to um, a data breach or a cyber attack. So let's consider the worst case scenario. You receive confirmation that, let's say, your current administrator has been subject to a data breach. You, of course, dust off your response plan and follow the immediate steps. And one of the first steps in that, um, the, and the question that we're often asked first off, is what are the trustees' formal notification obligations? Sarah, do you want to talk about that and perhaps particularly about the timing of it? Because that's something that I think people are often concerned about. Yes, of course. So we could probably have a whole podcast on this, but um, I try to keep it to two main steps that I find really helpful to go through when deciding whether notification obligations apply. So under UK law, trustees are under an obligation to notify a personal data breach to the ICO within 72 hours maximum of the data breach um, taking place. And so that means that the first step is to establish if a personal data breach has taken place. And I'm saying this because there is a specific definition for this under the law, which means that not all security or cyber incidents uh, will result in a, in a personal data breach. So often it's useful to take a step back and take a moment to actually assess whether one has taken place. If one has occurred, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to notify. In fact, not all personal data breaches are notifiable, only those that are likely to result in a risk to the rights and freedoms of individuals, meaning that the second step in sort of our decision process is to undertake and document a risk assessment which means that it, this will always be a very fact-dependent exercise and will help uh, controllers generally reach a conclusion as to whether a notification should be submitted and often it's a very nuanced decision is not black or white. So there might be uh, an element of how much risk controllers are prepared to take, for example, in this scenario, and um, a sort of a series of factors and considerations to be made. If it's decided uh, that a notification is required under the law, then there is specific information that needs to be covered in the notification. But helpfully, the ICO provides a notification form on its website. So um, it would just be a matter of filling in that form and then submitting the notification. That's really good to know because I think often our instinct is that we just have to notify everything straight away very quickly. And actually, from what you said, it's not necessarily the case that you always have to know. Yeah, I find that actually the tendency to over notify is uh, yeah. almost uh, harder to catch and more important to catch in practice than uh, the other way around. So that's the ITO notification. How about if our pension trust, what are our pension trustees have to tell their members about it? I'm sure there are probably here formal legal obligations, but more importantly, the trustees have duties to look after their members. So we'll want to be reassuring members about any, any breaches that have happened. Yeah, that is a very good point, And it comes up often in sort of um, the advice we give clients. So under UK law, controllers must notify individuals where the personal data breach is likely to result in a high risk to them. 
uh, meaning that the same risk assessment that we've just discussed for notifications to uh, the ICO will be relevant here, but the threshold for notifying individuals is higher, so only when the risk is likely to be high. Um, so it is possible, um, and in many cases, in fact, it happens that a personal data breach um, that requires notification to the ICO does not necessarily require a notification to individuals under the law, which brings me to sort of your second point, which is even in cases where a notification is not strictly speaking required, controllers might decide to inform individuals anyway, more as part of sort of in general incident management and a more of a PR customer care exercise. It's important though to distinguish the two, including when we uh, draft the notifications or the communications in practice and bear in mind that notifications to member under the GDPR require specific information to be covered under the law. And so this means that not all communications to members will necessarily be enough to satisfy the legal requirement. Understood. And I think we're all agreed at how important member communication is to make sure that we are reassuring any, any of our members, particularly vulnerable pensioners who could be affected. And in fact, even in sort of the spirit of the law is that um, the idea behind uh, informing members is not to put them on alert for no reason and sort of worry them, but quite the opposite. So the notifications to, to individuals normally include specific practical steps on how members or data subjects generally can protect themselves, uh, like in some cases changing a password or other, uh, other examples, uh, depending on the type of breach. So one um, scenario I have discussed with trustees is what if the cyber attack means that you lose access to your member data and crucially member contact details are lost? Do you have any ideas as to how trustees would actually go about contacting their members in that scenario? Yeah, so in, uh, this is not an uncommon scenario. And uh, even if uh, sort of the specific um, steps to take will depend on the type of breach and the circumstances of each case, I think it's generally important to keep in mind a few things like how to access backup data obviously should always be kept up to date ensuring that as part of that incident management plan or incident response plan you have measures in place to recover the data to the extent possible and act promptly on this so that should be always one of the first steps to take if communication to members is required or if you decide to inform the members then you might want to consider alternative means of doing that if you're unable to access the individual contact details for example example, websites or public means of communications or press articles, for example. We've seen clients do this in the past. An important point to consider is that incidents that present availability or integrity issues, so for example, losing access to data or where data is corrupted or deleted, are covered under the UK GDPR, which means that the usual data breach notification obligations will apply. Understood. So I think one of the potential consequences of a data breach is that the scheme data could be taken and end up for sale on the dark web, which I think always sounds quite foreboding and scary, but ultimately it could be taken by or, or bought or sold by people who are going to use it to um, commit fraud. Have you seen, or can you give our listeners any examples of how that might actually play out in practice? How could stolen data be used? Yeah, so a very uh, common uh, 
particularly recently, unfortunately, common scenario is the one uh, that we refer to as a ransomware attack, meaning a cyber attack where data is not necessarily, we say, exfiltrated, meaning a copy is not necessarily taken out of its sort of uh, database, but data might simply be encrypted, so it is out of reach effectively to the controller, and that is leveraged by the attackers to obtain the payment of a ransom from the controller. Uh, so that's a very common, common scenario, but I think another relevant example here, given the types of data that uh, is normally processed for the purposes of the scheme, which includes not only identifiers and contact details, but also contextual information, such as the name of the scheme providers, provider, etc., is that the attacker might use the data for its own fraudulent purposes. And a common one is uh, customized phishing attacks. So it means that the attacker won't actually be selling the data or making it available to third parties, but using it to commit sort of fraudulent acts. So trying to access the members' exactly. pension benefits themselves or trying to get them to transfer it somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. So having all of this contextual information will, in practice, unfortunately, lend itself very well to creating sort of customized communication like emails that might be hard to detect as a fake in practice because they carry all the contextual information that you as an individual expect to see from your provider therefore they sort of look like they were the real thing and there is a way to solicit certain information via the phishing attack from individuals yeah so i think that would be really concerning and i think um, we've seen recently an attack that involved national insurance numbers being stolen and i'm aware that a lot of pension scheme administrators use ni numbers to verify people's id when they call up to ask questions about their pension, they'll ask them to give, you know, the third or fourth digit in their national insurance number, for example. Obviously, if that number has been compromised, they can't then rely on that to confidently confirm members' IDs. So I think that's a clear example of that. I have seen um, over the last few weeks some administrators taking some interesting approaches to this. One, I think, a particularly useful approach is that administrators have been issuing individual PIN numbers to members so that they can use that to be able to verify their identities instead of their national insurance numbers. So it will give the administrators confidence that they are dealing with the people that they that they think they are in light of the, the sheer volume of some of the personal data that have been taken. Well, thank you, Sarah. I think that was a really helpful discussion. And as I said at the beginning, I think these recent data breaches and the number of schemes affected in the last few weeks has shown that these breaches do and can happen in practice, and they can have a significant impact on pension schemes. So I hopefully today we've shown how important it is to be prepared for these. And this is also hopefully a prompt to get an incident response plan in place if you don't have one, or if you do, to dig it out and make sure it's up to date and that you'd be confident to follow it um, in the worst case scenario. So that's everything for today. Thanks again, Sarah, for joining. Thank you for having me. And hopefully all our listeners found it helpful. Do listen out for our next episode of HL Pensions Pod. And we also have a new podcast uh, for you to listen to called HL Pensions Newsbeat. So please give that one a listen as well.